0: Welcome to the last month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. Finnegan partner Elizabeth Farrell joins us now to offer a roundup of recent case developments impacting design patents. Elizabeth, one of the design patent decisions the Federal Circuit issued this year, LEGO versus Zuru, Inc., involved the interplay of different IP rights and requests for injunctions. Can you remind us what the claims were and how the district court ruled?
1: Sure. So this was a case in which Zuru launched a series of toys. There were action figures, there were blocks, and there was what they called a toy tape, which was like a narrow strip of studs. And Lego sued Zuru on a number of different IP rights, including copyrights, trademarks, and design patents. Lego sued for on the action figures and on the toy tape relying on copyright and trademark rights, and they used design patents when they went after the blocks. So this was a request by Lego for a preliminary injunction, and the court granted Lego's preliminary injunction, and then uh, Zuru took an interlocutory appeal to the Federal Circuit.
0: And what was the Federal Circuit's ruling?
1: So in the interest of time, I'm just going to talk about the first and second rulings of the court. I'm not going to mention the toy tape Uh, Ruling, But it's very similar to the analysis of the first ruling. So with respect to the first ruling, which involved the Zuru action figures, uh, Lego had asserted its copyright and trademark rights, and the court had relied on those rights in issuing the preliminary injunction. On appeal, Zuru challenged the likelihood of success on the merits. Specifically, Zuru challenged the finding of Lego's expert. So what's interesting here was that on appeal, Zuru couldn't identify any material differences between the copyrights depicted in the Lego registrations and its own figures. And what I think is important to remember here and we'll discuss it a little bit more later, is that in the context of copyright, the appellate court is applying the Second Circuit test because this case came from Connecticut as opposed to applying its own precedent. And in doing so, what the Federal Circuit found was that Zuru was focusing on the differences between the copyright registration and its figures, rather than focusing on the substantial similarity between the two. And what the Federal Circuit found was that Zuru failed to show that the total concept and feel of the two works is different. Now, Zuru also challenged the district court's finding of irreparable harm and balance of the equities, but in that case, the court also agreed with the district court, finding that the district court did not abuse its discretion in these two findings. In sum, the federal circuit affirmed the district court's preliminary injunction finding with respect to the copyright and the figures. However, in contrast, the federal circuit did not find that the district court had support for its preliminary injunction with respect to the design patent. With respect to the design patent, Zuru did not challenge the likelihood of success on the merits, but rather only challenged the district court's finding of irreparable harm and balance of the equities. It appears that the oral argument was rather exciting on this one because in a couple of instances, the Federal Circuit actually refers to the oral argument in essentially determining that there was no record evidence that supported the district court's finding of irreparable harm. And so although the federal circuit did end up affirming the district court's finding on balance of the equities, because you need to have all of the prongs to maintain a preliminary injunction, the federal circuit overturned the preliminary injunction with respect to the design patents and the blocks. So in the end, Zuru was able to overcome some portions of the preliminary injunction, but not all of them.
0: And what tactical lessons do you think litigants can draw from this decision?
1: There's basically three things that are interesting about this decision. I think it's always important to keep in mind that regional circuit law applies to non-patent claims. What's interesting in this case is that the four-part test for a party seeking a preliminary injunction is actually almost word for word the same in the Second Circuit with respect to copyrights and trademarks, as it is with respect to design patents coming from the federal circuit. But the two tests were applied slightly differently because the underlying case law that must be applied came from two different sources. I think the second thing to keep in mind is that utility patent law still applies to design. And I think we saw this in the irreparable harm analysis. It's much the same analysis that the federal circuit would apply in a utility patent case. And so I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. And finally, I think this case was a little bit easier because although it was a a case involving multiple different kinds of IP rights, those rights were actually segregated. So, you know, you had the, the figures and the toy tape were being accused of Infringing copyright and trademark rights, whereas the blocks were being accused of infringing design patent rights. And so I think this is not like the situation where we find a single accused product that's being accused of both, say, trade dress and design rights. Because in that instance, you then have to worry a bit more about how the two theories will interplay with one another. With respect to trade dress and design rights, for example, you have to be particularly careful about your functionality arguments. So that wasn't a situation in this case, but I do think that's something important to keep in mind when building these types of multi-IP right cases.
0: The other case we'd like you to address is Spigen Korea Company, LTD versus UltraProof. What was this case about?
1: Right, so this case was about three design patents that were directed to cell phone cases. And UltraProof filed a motion for summary judgment of invalidity, arguing that Spigen's design patents were obvious in view of a particular combination of a primary reference and a secondary reference. And the district court granted summary judgment of invalidity, finding that the three design patents were obvious and uh, Spigen appealed.
0: And how did the federal circuit rule on that one?
1: So the federal circuit reversed, finding that a reasonable fact finder could have concluded that the primary reference did not create, quote, basically the same visual impression as each of the design patents. So in the context of obviousness for design patents, uh, there is an idea that you can use a primary reference and sometimes in combination with a secondary reference. The Primary reference, though, must be, quote, basically the same or have the basically the same overall visual impression as the design that you're trying to invalidate. And we've seen this in the Campbell's Soup IPR cases and in others that figuring out whether or not you have the same basic visual impression can be challenging. And here, the district court admitted that there were slight differences, but still found that the reference was a proper primary reference. Looking at this on de novo, as the court does, the the federal circuit found that there was a genuine issue of material fact about whether or not the primary reference was an appropriate primary reference. So as a result, the federal circuit overturned that finding on summary judgment.
0: And do you think this case is sort of indicative of a trend or a pattern by the federal circuit?
1: Well, we don't have a lot of data points, but we did see last year in the Columbia versus Cirrus case that the federal circuit overturned a finding of infringement on summary judgment. And, you know, we see this again in the Spigen case that the court has overturned a summary judgment finding of obviousness. So I would have told you that I thought that the federal circuit was sending the message that they thought that these types of decisions should be sent to the jury. But we did have a case, and I I love the name of this case, Super Sparkly Safety Stuff versus Skyline USA, also known as Guard Dog Security. It's a great name. And in that case, the court, the federal circuit, did affirm a finding of a summary judgment of non infringement. This was a situation in which the district court found that the claimed and accused designs were sufficiently distinct and that this finding was backed up by a review of the closest prior art. So in that case, the Federal Circuit affirmed, and although it has a fabulous name, that is a non-precedential decision. But I do think it, it perhaps balances out what I was at least seeing as a bit of a trend or a pattern recently from the Federal Circuit.
0: So we're recording this in mid-December. We're, we're approaching the end of the year. How would you describe the Federal Circuit's activity addressing design patents in 2020 compared to other years?
1: We had a bit of a down year, I would say. You know, we had three precedential decisions this year. We had six last year, which was kind of a banner year, I feel like, for designs. But I would say that overall, over the last, I don't know, say five years, I think we've really had a great run. I think that the federal circuit has written a lot of decisions which I think clarify some of our older case law, perhaps reaffirm it, apply it in a slightly different way, all of which I think provides a lot of very helpful clarification on a lot of different issues. But whereas this was a bit of a down year from the federal circuit standpoint, it was actually a huge year internationally for designs. You know, we had some sweeping design law changes in China. We had with uh, Brexit, we have essentially an entire set of European design rights that are now going to be imported into the U.K., And we had a lot of other important changes in law in both Korea and Japan. So while there wasn't too much going on with the federal circuit this year, we did see a lot going on in the rest of the world. If you're interested in learning any more about these uh, international changes, I recommend that you check out two of our recent webinars that we had. We did one webinar that covered the important changes in Japan, China, And South Korea, and then we had a second webinar that covered the important changes in the U.S., the U.K., and Europe. And links to both of those webinars are available in the podcast description for this podcast.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much, Elizabeth. You're welcome. Our guest has been Elizabeth Farrell, a partner at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.